Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed Dan Demers, the co-founder and CEO of the Dataware platform slash data fabric provider, Cinchi. I asked Dan to come on specifically to talk about data-centric application development. What I've seen from the interviews so far that I've done about schema and data contracts and data testing, one of the biggest pain points in data seems relatively universal. The difference between the operating model you know, the way the data is stored in operational systems for serving the needs of the applications and the data model that those domains are sharing for analytical purposes, it's pretty big. The operational data model also needs to evolve pretty constantly, but the data consumers are reliant on a more steady model. So if you don't have some way of Preventing breaks when there's a change in the operational model, it breaks the data model as well. And so how do you balance those changes between what the needs of the applications are and changing the operational schema and what the needs are of the data consumers? Specifically, the question I was wondering is, is data-centric application development a good approach to solving that challenge? From the conversation, I would conclude that my answer right now is maybe. It deserves more in-depth investigation. There are a few people really pushing the concept, but best practices will be hard to come by. They're just aren't a lot of people doing this just yet. So it is pretty bleeding edge. And as Matt Darwin had talked about in his interview as well, uh, you don't want to be on too many bleeding edges or or doing too much transformation all at once. So I think it's something to really consider uh, and look deeper into. I will be doing a deeper delve into this topic combined with the the topic of domain-driven design for data in some further interviews in the second half of January and, and into a little bit of early February. Specific to this interview, Dan shares his view that applications 
should simply leverage data, not create and and store their own versions. That way, organizations do not create the same data repeatedly with slightly different variations. And, you know, it just creates more confusion than is necessary versus creating that information once and sharing it with the applications. He argues that if data is really the valuable resource the industry is claiming it is, it should be the centerpiece of how you're doing your application design as well as your uh, data and analytics design. He argues that data integrations are one of the biggest pain points as to why data is so hard for companies to do right. And instead, that you should send access to data instead of send copies of the data. We dig a bit into how an organization could get started if they are bought into a data centricity model, a data aware uh, platform type model. And to kind of short circuit that, it's it's a big push of a larger group of people. It's got to be more of a top down. It's not a real skunk works type approach. And it's not going to be simple for the organization really to undertake. We also briefly touched on the need for better standards in sharing data within and across organizations. Dan talked about being involved in the CIM. So there's uh, more information in the interview and uh, a link in the show notes. Overall, I think it will give you a lot of food for thought. So thanks, Dan, again, and I hope everybody enjoys this one. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, I've got Dan Demers here, who's the co-founder and CEO of Cinchi, and I'm really excited about this interview because uh, Dan is is somebody who's been out there talking a lot about the concept of kind of data centric application development. So I'm I'm really excited to learn more about that. Uh, Dan, could you give a little bit of an intro background to yourself, and then we can jump into? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so, so yeah, I'm Dan, I'm the CEO, co-founder, uh, my background prior to founding, uh, Sinchi was, I used to work in a bunch of big banks, uh, spent about uh, 15 years in financial services, uh, 11 of those were at Citigroup, uh, and, uh, through that, that's where I met my co-founder, uh, and we saw firsthand the, the problem that ultimately we set out to solve, which is eliminating this wacky concept of integration and, uh, uh, then we created basically the Senshi platform and brought it to market. And we've now been in market for about three years. And uh, um, I'd also just say that I've been uh, a, a follower of the data mesh community, and it's been exciting to see it all come together and, and get to where it is today. So we're, we're very excited about where this is all going. So. Yeah. 
And and at some point, you know, Sinchi is a uh, data fabric solution. So at some point, you know, the data fabric versus data mesh debate, that isn't a real debate. We, should have, real debate. Back, yeah. we should have you back <laughs> on to, to talk about how we, we can, uh, the differences yeah. in the concepts, but also you can mm-hmm. build a data mesh with a data fabric. It's totally fine. <laughs> like it's yeah. totally a viable solution. The the reason why I wanted to have Dan on now, especially, was as I've been digging into these, uh, the data contract, data testing, schema contracts stuff. What what I just keep hearing is this concept of so many of the problems in data are that the rug keeps getting pulled out from underneath the people who are in data. The upstream changes. And when you think about an application, they have to be able to evolve what they are doing. You have to have that evolution possible. But when you have that refactor, there isn't a great way for people to prevent those downstream or those changes in that that application from changing the way that the data is also shared downstream. So it's just been something that I wanted to dig into more. And I'm, I've been seeing some people talking about um, data-centric application design, and, and a couple of people had mentioned, Dan, you specifically. So I wanted to have you on to talk about that. Could you give a little bit of background as to what you've seen or what, what you think is the, the high-level problem set around that, around, around think- the, the changes yeah. really impacting. Yeah, I, I think you honestly hit the nail directly on the head is is the fact that uh, schema changes, uh, it evolves. And uh, you, you can't, um, you, you can try and moderate and mitigate and minimize the amount of such change. But what you're actually doing is constraining the ability for an organization to become intelligent. Uh, because the evolution of schema is what enables humans to be intelligent. It's plasticity. Uh, so you need a model that enables uh, schema to change uh, data that was linked to this data set is now linked to this data set and you know uh, full name is now split from uh, into two fields and you, you need this evolution uh, and you need it to be enabled with not only within the data products but essentially anywhere where data is created uh, and uh, the, the that is the problem <laughs> is is the uh, the controls that we put in place to prevent code from breaking as a result of such change uh, creates this uh, this this limiter, this bottleneck on the ability for an organization to to make change. Uh, it's basically putting speed limits uh, um, because the cars can crash. Uh, so the question becomes: How do you make it so that the cars can't crash, such that you can remove those speed limits? and enable evolution at full throttle. What what have you seen people try that you don't think that worked? And maybe we can kind of go through mm-hmm. the, or Abi had talked about having, you know, this domain model and the persistence model, right? Like what what is the application actually storing and that you have a domain model and that you may have that that name split is kind of one of the most common ones, but that you just say, okay, I'm aware of what my downstream consumers are. So I'm going to keep a full name field. And even though the application is doing the name split, I'm also going to keep 
the full name field of just the concatenation for the the new mm-hmm. people that are coming in. And, but it gets more and more complicated and, and you're going to end up at some point having to refactor. So mm-hmm. like with that approach of, okay, I'm trying to prevent at least breaking changes to my domain model, the, sh- the model that I'm sharing relative to data consumers, where have you seen that that has its limits or, or, or how has that struggled? So the, so that ultimately uh, is moving in the right direction. And at least in, in my opinion, it's what it requires though, is, is a protocol, a contract uh, and not a contract on the schema, uh, but a contract on how to enable the schema evolution without breaking code uh, between the two parties that are uh, connecting and linking their, their data. Uh, but for, first of all, that that approach is definitely uh, moving beyond the traditional approach, which is like if you think of a microservices architecture where, you know, if you take a puristic vision of that, your data is siloed within each microservice and uh, the um, uh, the idea of, of uh, data existing in the context of a service such that it never gets reused by any other context is, is of course, flawed. Uh, The data is all connected. It's all linked, right? So uh, the fact that we're now talking about uh, linking and connecting data across, uh, whether it's across applications or across data products or across domains is is actually a step forward uh, versus the the older fashioned way of linking just the code together and then the code, the data sits behind the code. That's that's app centricity at its core. Um, But coming back to your your question around uh, the uh, enablement of uh, essentially what you want is you want to enable uh, schema evolution to take place within a thing. That thing could be a data product, could be an application, could be anything that ultimately needs to interact with data, store data, access data, generate data. Uh, and you want to enable other applications or other contexts uh, to use that data but perhaps refer to it differently, uh, and um, like first name, last name versus full name. Um, but um, uh, in order to achieve that, you do need uh, a common uh, protocol between uh, the, the the two systems that are interacting with each other. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like one of the things that uh, that that we're doing is we have our platform called Tinchi, which we we present as a dataware platform. Uh, dataware being the uh, the realization of the the vision of data centricity, uh, but dataware itself is not it's bigger than than Cinchi as a company, right? So they're we're working on the establishment of standards. Like one of them is what we call zero copy integration. Is how do you move the world to a model where uh, applications, be them operational or analytical in nature, uh, can link and connect data such that that data can be owned by other departments, other organizations, other companies, other individuals, uh, and not be at the mercy of schema evolution causing your logic that you've built on top of that model to break. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does require standards. Now, in absence of a, of a global, international, uh, open standard, uh, within an organization, you can create such a standard. Um, but you're kind of left on your own to do that today. But that, yeah. it does require that, yeah. Okay. And, and so, yeah, I, I guess I did kind of skip ahead to somebody that's doing something a little bit more advanced, exactly what you talked mm-hmm. about. I, I don't like as much when people talk about the, 
uh, you know, data mesh is is treating data as a product instead of as a byproduct because it it does feel a little um, contrite, but that kind of is the way that microservices approach treats it. It's that the application is not just the first order concern; it is the concern. It is mm-hmm. not first order concern, and data is the second order concern. It's that mm-hmm. what what you're having is um, whatever the application is changing its its data storage, its schema, its whatever you want to think about, that everything downstream just has to deal with it. And this is where I think I was really against the modern data stack. And now I've really come around to very much empathizing with people that are doing the modern data stack because it's the ground underneath them keeps getting just completely shifted. All the upstream is is changing. Um, and so they're just finding a way to be productive when they understand that everything might break, sim- but that it's not something that they can control for the upstream, right? So if you want to be productive, right. you have this. Mm-hmm. So, wh- yep. so you, you talked about kind of data-centric application design and data centricity. Mm-hmm. How do you think about application design within that? So one one thing that that I'm finding is there is just an unrelenting pace to application design right now. Just absolutely you cannot slow that down and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I haven't really come to a great conclusion around, but with data centricity, that concept, how much work do you have to do up front versus how much can you think about, you know, what, what, if someone right. were to start to look at this, are their devs going to be uh, pulling their hair out and screaming? Or is this a revel, you know, something where they're like, oh, this is actually pretty easy and useful? Or how do you change their thought process to move from this? Because I think Mm. at the end of the day, I've I've been saying 2022 is the year of uh, data as a product, not just the data mesh concept of it, but just overall how we think about that. And then 2023 is the year where people start to go, okay, we just have to start from the data because everything keeps breaking uh, otherwise. And we're doing all these (laughs) things, just keep pushing left, pushing left, pushing left. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very true, um, and uh, and I very much agree with what you just said. Is the the realization that you know all this complexity uh, that's triggered all these different waves of you know air quotes innovation in the data world, uh, it all addresses individual symptoms of really one underlying root issue, uh, which is the fact that uh, data is stored. Uh, wherever it is ultimately created. And when someone else needs to access it or reference it or change it is they store their own local copy of it. The fact that they store it in a different representation of that isn't necessarily the problem. It's that it's a separate copy of that. And how do you keep that copy in sync? And that's where you're getting into you know, doing integration. That's where all the complexity lies. And because the data uh, is fragmented, it is siloed, that's why you need uh, to you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again if you want to try and build a report or do an analytic or get an insight out of that. That's why you need a, whether it's a data mart or a data warehouse or a, a, a data fabric or a data mat, why you need these things is because of data being fragmented in the first place. Uh, so first of all, if you imagine that we had a clean slate, which we don't, but just imagine for a second, 
So imagine if you were able to re-architect the world, <laughs> uh, you would not design it such that uh, you need integration. You can, if you apply uh, a data-centric uh, design philosophy into how you build your applications, you're still going to have applications, but they're and, and applications will still originate data, but they won't store it in a way that is proprietary to the application. It may be stored in a in a model uh, that is uh, created by that application and owned by that application team, but enabling that data to be accessed, reused, and even changed you know, assuming the right level of access, of course, by other applications without relying on the need to do this air, air quotes integration phenomena is really the core of data centricity. Um, so uh, that's if, if you had a clean slate, if you were starting from scratch. Well, of course, unless you're a company that doesn't yet exist and you're going to come into market, you know, a year from now or something, you know, maybe you have such an opportunity, but most People today have existing systems, they have existing uh, uh, architectures, they have uh, custom-built apps, they have uh, on-prem apps, they have SaaS apps, they have all these things that were architected in the traditional app-centric way where each system is a silo and stores its own data, uh, its own copy of data in its own model, uh, its own representation of data. You subscribe to Salesforce, uh, it has its own model. Uh, you can change that, but it's going to store it in a silo. I think it uses an Oracle database behind the scenes or something. But... Um, so the question becomes really what you ask, which is, well, uh, if if you can kind of see this panacea state, if you were able to get a clean slate, uh, but I'm not starting from there, should I not even try? <laughs> uh, and the the interesting realization that I've had is we're not done uh, building applications. There's a lot more to build. Uh, so there's um, the opportunity really is to change how you deliver change. Uh, it's not about rebuilding everything that's already in place. It's not about throwing away existing systems and existing investments. It's about changing how you build the next application, how you do your next integration, how you build your next, uh, again, whether it's an analytical capability or an operational capability, that's where the opportunity to begin the transformation away from app centricity towards data centricity uh, comes into play. So if I'm going to be building 10 new applications for 10 new business capabilities, uh, don't stand up 10 new data stores uh, with 10 new uh, specific data models where you're going to do integration between them. That's the opportunity to apply data centricity right there. So I'm going to push back on, on a couple of mm -hmm. things there as, as far as I'm understanding it. So sure. within Data Mesh, one of the, the big, uh, you know, big benefits is to understand how the data itself is evolving. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of what you're talking about sounds like it is the persistence. It is the current state of the data versus how has the data changed. So I, I understand that that makes it easier to then potentially share that for analytical use cases. But when I think about things like streams and, and things like that, it's what has happened. It's the series of mm -hmm. events. So it seems like from my interpretation of what you just said, this is again about the persistence. Now, is it that, that you can uh, make it so sharing those changes is, is easier or, or how do I think about this and how do I, yeah. you know, question. yeah, let's, let's yeah. jump into that. Yeah. So it's a good question. And, and I, I think the answer is, is yes, it is about persistence, but uh, persistence throughout time, uh, meaning, 
uh, as data is is changing, whether it's net new created or whether it's modified or whether it's ultimately deleted, the separation of the management of data from each individual application now gives you a unique opportunity to make a more robust universal data layer. Uh, whereas if you rely on each individual application to manage its own data, it's not going to have a time machine. It's not going to have uh, granular uh, cellular access protections. It's not going to have all the controls and capabilities. I want to see you know, what the data was like uh, at 3.30 AM three days ago uh, versus today, or tell me the last time this data changed. I want to be able to in inspect not only the current data, but the current data is the cumulative effect of all historical changes against that data. Uh, I want to be able to query even the changes themselves. Uh, the model where you uh, are managing data within each application, it's not feasible for each application to build in all of those capabilities. But if you relieve the applications from the complexity of managing data and you provide it as a service to the applications, uh, you now have the opportunity to essentially create the data layer that solves for what you just, just explained. It's, it's not about persistence of just the latest live copy of data, uh, but uh, the entire uh, lineage of that data right from its original creation. Uh, that's ultimately what you want to be able to interact with. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little... When I hear that, I start to think about almost data swamp in that if you're doing that for every piece of data, is it that you're mm -hmm. making that decision as to, you know, if you think about an address change for um, uh, you know, an e-tailer, they probably don't really need to care that much about somebody changing their address other than I need to ship things to this new place. Mm -hmm. Versus, so are you then- Are you worried about storage? Uh, st storing and, and, and that you're doing yep. this for every single, every single mm -hmm. concept that's there. Sure. That, yep. And when you think about you know, when you think about one company that has a few domains, I think this makes a lot of sense versus when you have a company, you know, I'm thinking of these big conglomerates mm -hmm. and you have 8 million domains and then you just end up with this. Okay, great. But how do I actually then take this and share this in a useful way? Are, are you then mm -hmm. still packaging that into a data product where that team is still then better able to package that up for sharing? Or how do you think about taking this? And I still do want to circle back on the actual application design aspect. But sure. like, yeah, how do you think yeah. about packaging this up for the um, data consumers? Yeah. So uh, again, if we were, we're talking about in the context of data centric delivery. Uh, so assuming that uh, you're building, uh, let's say you buy into the idea of data centricity and you buy into the, uh, the paradigm of, of data where, where you're going to separate management of data from the individual uh, applications uh, and uh, the uh, universal data layer that you would put in place, whether you build it or buy it, it's up to you uh, has whatever you would define as the minimal viable control set and capability set that you would want across all of your data. And you could design that layer such that it was configurable, such that uh, what I was talking about earlier around the enablement of a, of a time machine, be it for data or data and metadata, uh, could be configurable for individual data sets or data products. 
for example, like in, in our platform, it's, it's not currently configurable. It's enabled for everything um, where the, the view is that uh, by eliminating the need for apps to do integration, uh, you're dramatically, dramatically reducing the amount of data that needs to be stored. Uh, like if I think of, a, of an example just in, in a past life, when I was at Citigroup, they had 10,000 plus applications and each of those applications probably need, needs to know something about a customer. So how many times is customer data stored? Like a ridiculous amount of times. If you were able to re-architect it such that each context didn't need to restore the same data, even if it modeled it differently, uh, then the addition of changing, uh, storing, sorry, the incremental changes over time uh, it's still exponentially less data to be stored with the added benefits of a true control plane. Uh, and if you happen to work in an organization that operates in a highly regulated sector like financial services, the enablement of universal controls is a huge, uh, huge advantage. Uh, being able to see the, you know, the history of any piece of data, uh, literally a data cell. Where did this come from? Who created it? When it was modified? Being able to do that universally knowing that you're still storing exponentially less data uh, is definitely, in, in my mind, a win-win-win. Uh, but that being said, when you're if you're designing your data layer, you can choose to design it such that it is configurable for individual data sets, for data products, for data domains, uh, and make it so that the ability to store that evolution uh, is configurable. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is the, the domain aspect of this, mm-hmm. of, you know, if we are thinking about packaging the information up again yep. if, let, let's say you do have you you are doing this data centricity mm-hmm. how would you think about creating that data product and if multiple people can own the same data th- if there if there are different aspects to that if there's a different metadata understanding of you know mm-hmm. we had Juanes Rosiers on he was talking about the word customer is, is, is a bad word because it just doesn't have enough metadata around it. So is it the individual customer and that's underneath a household and you may have a null household or it may be a one-to-one where, but that you're, you're specifying that. So that granularity aspect and how do you yeah. make sure that the domains can package this up and that people aren't just going and saying, oh, I've got this sea of data. I've got to go and kind of spelunk and figure out what I'm trying to do versus the intentionality of data mesh of, I'm going to share my data with you in a packaged way. Yeah, and so I, th- I think the idea of sharing it in a packaged way makes sense, uh, regardless if you're applying data centricity or not. The difference though, is if you're using data centricity, what you're really packaging uh, is uh, more a, a point-in-time representation of the metadata, uh, because ultimately what you're discouraging is for people to send copies of data, uh, such that you're providing access to data, uh, not copies. Uh, so um, that's that. I think is the the first key point there is that, um, and, and the second is that the. Uh, you mentioned, for example, that uh, data can be owned by multiple parties. Well, it, uh, it actually can't. Ultimately, an individual piece of data, like a data cell, let's say an attribute of a specific entity, regardless of what that attribute is named, but regardless of what that entity uh, is named, ultimately needs to be 
uh, originated from some uh, some somewhere. It could have been a human. It could have been software. It needs to be originated from somewhere. Uh, so the uh, the separation of the data from the applications actually enables the data mesh concept uh, to be extended beyond the analytical plane into the operational plane, uh, where the data can actually be owned by the actual business units uh, that are uh, ultimately uh, own, owning the business processes that rely on that data that, that generate that data. Um, so uh, at least my viewpoint is that data should be owned by the business, uh, not owned by applications. Yeah, I, uh, I think I get that. I, I, I just, I'm going through all sorts of, mm-hmm. uh, well, what about race conditions and what about, you know, all this stuff, but let, let, let's sure, not, yeah. let's not rat hole on, on super specific. Well, uh, yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of technical complexity that you would need to build into your layer, right? So uh, if you're creating a universal data layer that's used by multiple applications, you know, taking the old legacy failed pattern of a shared database, but bringing that into the modern age where you're kind of blending that with the concept of a data mesh to enable federated governance and separation of deployment, like all the, all those same cons- concerns, standard, uh, um, you know, standard representation, like all, all those considerations is there is a lot of complexity that you would need to deal with, whether it's, um, you know, how to da- handle metadata change, uh, data change over time, uh, race conditions, uh, uh, localization, like where is the physical data actually stored and yeah, uh, privacy compliance. There's lots of complexity there, trust me. Um, yeah, and it, smaller organizations may not need to deal with all of that complexity, but bigger ones like a, a big global bank, trust me, is going to have to deal with all of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah there, there, there's a lot that, that we could uh, peel back on, but the, I don't want to yeah. have a, a four-hour episode or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so... One question that, that that I asked, and we kind of went around it a little bit, but, um, well, actually, a different one that I want to ask first that I think it could be a yes or no question is, you talked about, do you have, are you seeing people deploy a single universal data layer, or are you seeing people deploy data layers for sets of applications, because that's where I, I was getting concerned is that if you have a single, single universal mm-hmm. layer for the entire, you know, especially a bank that's got 10,000 applications, like yeah. that concept to me just is like, I, I don't understand how that could work. Sure. Yeah. And the answer is it's for a cluster of, of related applications. Uh, where that same uh, universal data layer could be separately instantiated for another cluster, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and and the other thing is, is, is it's not about all data in existing applications, because you're not going to be able to feasibly re-architect the thousands of existing systems such that they no longer store their own data. They're going to work the way they work. Uh, you're going to continue to buy new applications that are going to still work where they assume they have their own local data. Um, SaaS apps, on-prem apps. So the opportunity is when you're creating your own applications to apply data-centric design uh, to those applications to enable you know, your, your 15 new business capabilities to all interact with a single piece of data without having to do, uh, what did I say, 10 or 15 uh, integrations. That, that's yeah. really what the opportunity is. Do, do, and you the, still, mm-hmm. do you still think of it as microservices in that sense then when it's applications because each microservice kind of does its own thing? But like, do you need that? Or can you have, like, that? can the, the micro become not yeah. micro to kind of a service level or a macro services? How are you seeing that evolve with your, your yeah? Users? So it, it's a it's a good question. There's lots of um, 
uh, I'd say confusion uh, over the, the the role of data in a microservices architecture. And as the role of data gets better understood and changes, what does that mean to how you think about microservices? <laughs> uh, and um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really hot topic, I would say, these days. Uh, but the way I, I think of the evolution of, of code for a second, uh, you know, we started with monolithic and then client server and then three-tier, n-tier, service-oriented architecture and now microservices. And, you know, what's actually happening there is it's enabling uh, the federated development of this code to deal with larger uh, complexity because you, if it, you know you can't manage this all through a central monolithic code base uh, for the entire enterprise. You need to separate it. Uh, and the, you know if you think of just the evolution, it's how do I separate and enable autonomy while at the same time enabling reuse because I need interconnectivity between this. My code needs to talk to your code. Uh, you know, and we can do that by having a single code base. Uh, we can do that by uh, I could do a sim link to your code repository and I can compile it inside of my code. Uh, I could do that by you compile it, send me your library, and I store the version of the library and I refer to that library. Or we can do that by you giving me an endpoint and I hit that endpoint. Uh, so if you think of just the evolution of code, it's gone from uh, single monolithic as the way of enabling interoperability between code um, where you need to enable the federation and then re add in the capability for interoperability. You're, and the end result of that is that you're creating a network of code. When my service calls your service, which then calls another service, uh, and all that may be invoked by an ultimate you know, operational application, uh, it's kind of like a network of code. That's kind of what's happening here, right? So it's organizing the code such that it enables federated development, yet enables interoperability between uh, these independently developed pieces of code, these pieces of logic. Uh, well, apply that very same concept to data, uh, and it actually works wonderfully. Uh, uh, the, the problem is we were, I think, confused thinking that the data sits behind the code, and as the code becomes more singularly purposed, more, more, more fine-grained, is therefore you're creating more silos of data, not less uh, silos of data, which doesn't make any sense. So you separate the data from the applications, and essentially the end result of that is um, you're going to want your data to be linked and connected and enabling federated development of data, be it the data itself or the metadata, uh, in the same way that you would want that for your code. So uh, the to me the the evolution of code is 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 right in that it should continue to go down the path of smaller, uh, more composability essentially, and we're just at the early beginnings of the realization that that should be applied to data as much as it should be applied to code. Yeah, and I, I think you're you're skipping, you know, uh, ahead uh, of where I think even the evolution is is going. So it's it's kind of. I, I don't know if people will jump that far that fast or if this is, you it, know. It's a gradual thing. They won't. Um, it has to be uh, like when we're, when we're, you know, positioning our product, for for example, like it's, it's how do you apply technology to take out pain uh, as you deliver change? The fact that uh, it ultimately can help you get to an end state uh, where you're doing less and less integration with a vision of doing no integration. Uh, and having, again, that network of data sitting uh, as a separate plane from your network of code, uh, where your code is really experiences, uh, and, and the data exists once, even if it's re represented multiple times, in the same way that you know you could use a French word for an apple, and I can use the English word for an apple, 
or we're talking about the same concept. And I can literally point to an apple if I had an apple. Um, um, and um, I can say this apple, <laughs> and we could be talking about the same apple. If I take a bite out of it and hand it to you, it's the same apple. The bite's taken out of it. There's only one uh, uh, apple, right? It's uh, That's how you have to think of information. Um, that's not how it works in an app-centric architecture. Uh, so it, it is uh, very much um, uh, an evolutionary thing uh, that uh, I, I think is, is absolutely inevitable uh, in the same way that uh, the evolution of software kind of went through this multi-stage journey. Uh, I, I think if you actually go back in time and just replay that, you'll see that it was inevitable. Right, the idea of a single central code base to run uh, the world uh, ain't going to work. You need to you need to compartmentalize it. You need to enable composability. Right, so the um, there is an inevitability to this, uh, but just because something is inevitable doesn't mean it happens all in one big bang. It's gradual. Yeah, for sure. So you know a, a lot there, but like kind of circling back to this does take change in how you are not even just like the implementation, but the thought process. So yeah. how are you seeing that thought process kind of happen? Like when you go into mm -hmm. a customer, right. it, are the application developers, does it take them a lot of time to grok how they would do this? Do you have to do the data layer modeling first like how does this cause a slowdown initially to then speed up or is this you know i'm just trying to figure out how yeah, much effort that yeah. the application developers also have to understand or do you have to have data engineers embedded in so somebody who really understands data is helping them or how does that work so the the first thing is the organization and the organization could be an organizational unit within a large you know uh, global conglomerate uh, uh, or it could be the entire organization if it's a smaller organization needs to buy into the idea of moving towards uh, being data centric at some scope of the organization whether it's the entire global company or or a division uh, where they envision multiple applications collaborating on data as an alternative to integrating on data uh, if you don't buy into that vision you wouldn't want to move forward with anything that I'm talking about. <laughs> you wouldn't want to basically be thinking data-centric. You'd want to be thinking app-centric. So not everyone is bought into that. It's it's an active debate, um, is what I would say. Um, I'll tell you, though, that what I'm seeing is that there is more and more A, awareness, and B, acceptance of moving uh, of the need, the pressing need, because of the proliferation of applications, especially as, as digital transformation accelerates, as everything becomes digitized, that's more applications, not less. In a model where more applications means more integrations just ain't sustainable. So I'm I'm personally seeing in, in the market uh, increased uh, awareness and acceptance that that is undoubtedly uh, required and not 50 years from now, like now, um, is is the first thing. And uh, so if you assume, though, that the organization is bought into that, now it gets into your question, which is, you know, what is that lift? Uh, is there, you know, uh, a trade-off? Do I have to go slower in order to go faster? And now you're getting into uh, kind of the change methodology. And uh, I would say it depends. If you go about the change uh, one way, it will result in you going slower and maybe going faster down the road. What I would advocate for is a different approach, uh, which is to never accept any slowdown 
and demand instant acceleration. Uh, and the way uh, that I would suggest to do that is to apply uh, the concepts to the changes that you're going to be doing anyway. So don't create a project uh, and a budget and a team uh, around uh, the idea of moving towards a data-centric architecture. Uh, simply apply it, you know, if you're going to be building a new application, if you're going to be buying a new application, if you're going to be integrating three applications, is applying it uh, to that and expecting uh, acceleration as a result of that. Now, the, the net effect of that is you're not building out your uh, connected fabric of knowledge all in one shot. It's happening incrementally as you deliver change. Uh, but my my personal view is that's the only way that you can actually ever achieve progress is to change how you deliver the change. Uh, I've seen so many, you know, air quotes, transformational projects that that try and do Big Bang and it just never works. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what's happening with data mesh when people are trying to rush into it. But so I, yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to dig into if I'm an application developer. And, yep. and say uh, I'm I'm listening to this and saying I'm bought in. Mm-hmm. What next? Like, it, it, am I That's able it, yeah. to affect that change? Do I have to learn new skills? Do I have to learn how the data modeling is going to work? Like, mm, I see. So it, it, yeah, it's a good point. Driven? Yeah, um, in some ways, yes, because if I'm uh, building the application and we're talking about separating the data layer out from the application, as the application developer, how do I interface with that layer? But that layer needs to exist, right? So the first question is, does that layer exist? Uh, And if my mandate is to solely deliver on a single application, uh, I'm not going to build the data layer for all the other applications. I'm going to build a data layer that meets my needs. Uh, So it has to be an organizational decision to separate uh, the data layer from the application layer. It has to be. Uh, and with that, you need uh, people. It depends if you're buying or building. Let's say that you're going to build your own uh, uh, dataware solution internally for a, an organizational unit. You're going to have a team of people who are building your universal data layer. Uh, that's going to be separate and distinct from the teams that are building the applications. And now to your question, which is I'm a developer building an application. And let's assume for a second that I'm in an organization that's bought into this and has essentially cre- either bought or uh, is building uh, the dataware solution that I'm going to interface with, what I need to understand is how do I interface with it? Uh, is it over REST? Is it over, is it using JSON? Is it using, and all, that's going to be highly dependent upon how the dataware uh, layer is designed. Um, so it will uh, influence and disrupt. And do I need to learn or unlearn? It's going to be highly dependent upon what is the dataware solution? How do I interface with that universal data layer? Which is why I think it's important that ultimately we move to standardization of what that layer looks like. Not so much standardization of the implementation, but standardization of the interface into that implementation. Yeah, I, I think this is, I think that point is necessary for pretty much everything is that we, mm-hmm. especially when you start to think about cross organization, everything is that we need standards around um, how you access data, how you store data, or or what, you know, whatever. So that way, especially when you think about interoperability and and things like that for data products, we had uh, Jesse Paquette on and he was talking about you know, I was asking this question as to you're, you're consuming this data from external sources into your product and how does this work? 
Um, and he was like, well, there are specified schemas within the life sciences domain, right? There are these specified schemas that people already have to meet. So it makes it that, that it's, it's easier that you can do things because you know that this should be there. And so we need to start to have those types of concepts of standards or, or whatever yeah. to make it that people can deviate from them when, yes. when it makes sense but that they have a starting point. This, this has been yes. a big concern for me with data mesh is that people have to invent all the concepts whole cloth because it, it, there yeah. isn't a lot of examples of this. There isn't a lot of even examples of output ports of, okay, we're going to share with you the different APIs that we use. Um, and so people can, can do that. They have to design their own APIs and people aren't used to designing data APIs. So the more that we can create those, those things that, that people can evaluate, do I like this or not, rather than I have to come <laughs> up with the whole concept myself. Yeah, from, is... from scratch. Yeah. And, um, there's a couple of attempts to do that. Uh, uh, like if you follow, uh, Dave McComb, who's, uh, definitely the thought leader in the data centric, uh, movement, uh, uh, he has, uh, through his company, uh, an open uh, model that is intended to act as that kind of bootstrapping. Uh, and like one of the things that uh, we're working on at Cinchi is we're part of the uh, cloud information model. Uh, if you just go to cloudinformationmodel.org, uh, it's something that we're working on with Salesforce and uh, um, Amazon. And there's a whole bunch of other uh, players there. But the, the vision there is to essentially do what you just described, is to create a standard for interoperability where there is essentially a common model that represents uh, various uh, various subjects that uh, doesn't prescribe that your application need to operate natively off of this, but it enables interoperability. Because if I speak SIM, uh, the cloud information model, and you speak SIM, then you know the uh, the need for me to map my data structure to your data structure is eliminated because if my data structure is mapped to this model and your data structure is mapped to that model, therefore my data structure is now auto mapped to your data structure, right? So it enables the interoperability. So there's it's almost like there's two layers of standards that are needed. One one is is uh, standard models uh, help uh, reduce the interoperability friction, uh, but the standard that I was referring to earlier is 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 going even beyond that uh, in terms of um, how to enable um, the uh, interoperability without the requirement of the standard model in the middle, if that makes any sense. Uh, but uh, does that does that make sense? Like, so, sort of. I'm I'm not. Yeah. It's not fully clicking into place, but I think it will yeah. later. And I think I'll have some follow up <laughs> questions. I think it's just sure. something yeah. where. Uh, yeah. my, my brain at, at the uh, end of a lot of these is that uh, it's just full <laughs> up and it's 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 hitting the uh, the the out of memory error the the processing buffer <laughs> kind of thing, um, but yeah so so I think this has been really really interesting and helpful. Um, I'm I'm gonna play through it at, at, you know a couple of times to really grok everything that you said, but. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover today that, that you think we should, or is there any specifics that you wanted to clarify or dig a little bit deeper into, or if, if not, we can, um, I'm happy. No, I, I think the one, the one thing that I would want to, uh, maybe just emphasize, and we talked about it at the beginning is, is the, the problem of, uh, 
you know, in the real world, data is all connected. Uh, and if we want to connect it, we need to link it, not not copy. And uh, the problem with that is uh, it's ever changing, uh, meaning there's not like it's not like we're going to ever going to be finished doing the data model for all human knowledge. Right. It's, it's a continuous evolution. Uh, so the data model itself as metadata is data in that it can change. <laughs> uh, so we need to accept that and embrace that. And I think historically what we've tried to do as technologists is try and put in controls that limit the ability to make such change. And we need to actually think differently. And how do we unlock the ability to make that change at absolute scale uh, and, and address the reasons why we were trying to restrict such change in the first place, right? Is we need to enable schema evolution at scale. And that is the game changer. Uh, the difference between a human who has the ability for your brain to rewire itself as a result of learning versus a human who does not is a human who's intelligent versus one who is not. Like if plasticity, the ability to have schema evolution is a critical requirement for intelligence. So uh, that's pretty damn exciting. <laughs> the fact that we're on the, the cusp of moving away from uh, schema rigidity to schema evolution and flexibility means we're getting to the point where we're going to be unlocking true intelligence in an enterprise and, and uh, uh, you know, software context. Uh, so forget about AI being artificial. Like we're talking about starting to bring in elements of like natural intelligence, collaborative intelligence. That's really what this ultimately enabled. It is insanely exciting. So um, it's going to be a fun ride. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more or connect with you? Uh, so there's two places. One is Sinchi.com uh, uh, for uh, the, I guess, the Sinchi the platform. And the uh, and right there, you can uh, ask us anything and it will actually, uh, you can basically call me directly from the site. Uh, and uh uh, the the other is if you go to datacollaboration.org, uh, that's our not-for-profit side where we're pushing on the standards. So like the standards that I mentioned, uh, you can read up on them. And if you want to be able to contribute, uh, you know, more contributors, the, the merrier. So we're running some interesting projects under that. So, uh, and of course, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. Okay, I'll, I'll drop all of those uh, links in the show notes just to make it easy for folks. But, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thanks so much, uh, Dan, for taking the time. And, and thanks thank so you. much, everybody, for uh, listening today. I want to thank my guest today, Dan Demers, the co-founder and CEO of the Dataware platform or data fabric provider, Sinchi. If you want to get in touch with Dan or learn more about Sinchi or the cloud information model standard Dan had mentioned, please see the links in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Datastacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, 
you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.